Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna, and me, Frederick. In this episode, we'll sit down with Gavin Wood to talk about Polkadot, some Ethereum sharding history, and what Substrates is. So before we start this episode, we just wanted to let you know about an upcoming event called the Web3 Summit happening in Berlin from October 22nd through 24th. Both Frederick and I will be on site and we'll be organizing a meetup um, for the Zero Knowledge community. So please keep your eye on our Twitter at Zero Knowledge FM. And if you're around, come say hi. So I hope to see you there. Now here's our interview with Gavin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back, Gavin Wood, to this show. For those who don't know, Gavin is the founder and CTO of Ethereum, or WUS, and he's the founder of Parity, and is now working on a new project called Polkadot. Uh, super happy to sit down with you again. Thanks for having me. Hi, Gavin. So we know you pretty well, but we're really excited to have you back on. So far in the podcast, we've mentioned Polkadot a couple times, so we now have a chance to actually like set the scene for Polkadot. So I think to start, I'm definitely curious, where did Polkadot come from? Um, well, the backstory uh, to Polkadot, I guess, is relatively um, nebulous. It <clears throat> the, the beginnings of it were basically my considerations for scaling out Ethereum, which I, I started thinking about in sort of mid to late 2014. Now, after leaving the Ethereum Foundation, I was uh, very heavily involved in development for, for the Parity Ethereum client um, and not thinking so much about sort of next generation protocols or scaling or anything like that. Um, I was I was pretty um, um, focused on just making sure we've made Ethereum as, as well as we could. But um, around mid-2016, um, once the Parity Ethereum client had hit 1.0 and we were relatively happy with the progress on that, it sort of came to the to the forefront of my mind, and I started thinking about how we might uh, how Ethereum might might scale eventually. Um, now, this was something that was meant to be um, in development for late 2015 and, and and much of 2016. And as someone who was sort of taking part in the core dev calls um, at the time, uh, where we were discussing, you know, what was going to happen with Ethereum and and all of the sort of ideas, and, and really looking for. Um, in some sense, you know, sort of um, uh, technical leadership from the Ethereum research team, we, we were getting relatively sort of a lot of, uh, how, would, how would I put it, um, interesting ideas were, were coming, um, but relatively little concrete uh, sort of uh, specifications um, or, uh, or descriptions of, of, of what the uh, final solution will be was, was uh, you know, was, uh, was hand being handed over to us. So it was at this point I started thinking, right, well, you know, sooner or later, Parity is going to have to start creating something that is a scalable version of Ethereum. And it's going to be sort of with or without, um, you know, the foundation's help. So that's basically when I started thinking about what would become um, Polkadot. Now, in late summer of 2016, I was in San Francisco with another guy from Parity, uh, Marek Kotovic. And, you know, we were, we were sort of chatting about, you know, how cool, uh, you know, sort of parity Ethereum was and how cool it would be to sort of build on it and, and what the next generation of Ethereum, of the Ethereum protocol was going to look like. And I was sort of talking about some of the directions that, that the Ethereum Foundation guys were going in, what Vlad was talking about, what Vitalik was talking about, what I had sort of put forward in, in uh, a couple of years before. And uh, we actually met with um, with Jay Kwan as well from Cosmos at the time, who was uh, sort of describing what Cosmos looked like. Um, then I think it was called something else like Gnuna or some, 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 you know, significantly worse name. Um, <laughs> and we, uh, you know, over the next day or two, um, we were sort of hanging around in San Francisco. I think there was a particular cafe that we spent on bar or something, um, that we spent a few hours at. I forget where it was exactly. Um, where basically we put together what would become Polkadot. And it was, um, we took ideas sort of, uh, that have been on the back burner, um, and 
really it was like, right, let's, how do we do this? How do we make a scalable Ethereum? If we want to do it as, as quickly, as simply, and as, as speedily, uh, as, yeah, as quickly as possible, then, uh, let's, let's just think about how we would do it. So, um, Polkadot, or at least a sort of proto Polkadot came from that. And what Polkadot was, was a realization on top of that, that actually this framework that I've just sort of described, it doesn't require the individual chains to be all of the same type. They don't all have to be shards of Ethereum. They can actually, yeah. in principle, be be any kind of chain. One question here, was sharding already proposed at this point? The idea of, you know, splitting up the Ethereum state into many different um, pieces and, pro and processing them in parallel in some way was, uh, you know, was sort of really it was around since day one of ethereum it was okay. like this is where ethereum will go eventually but the specific idea of, of how it was going to happen like technically speaking and how the game theory was going to make sure that you know no validators could ever possibly attack the network um that wasn't that was still really hasn't been ironed out it really hasn't mm. been nailed down at all um so yeah we're talking like two years ago when um basically it was like the polka dot paper um was was being discussed in these meetings, like, so you're in this, these, the Ethereum core dev calls. Was there a frustration a little bit? Kind of like a sense of like, I want to go faster. Um, definitely from, from the side, from our side, from parity. Um, and certainly from my, my side. Yeah. We're getting fed up of waiting, you know? Um, this is what the, um, Ethereum research guys were meant to be delivering. And, and there was relatively little the appearance of progress. Mm. Now, you know, I'm sure if, if you sort of dive deeper into it, there was progress happening behind the scenes. Um, ideas were being tried. There were people thinking about it. There were sort of, you know, to and fro, um, as is often the case with creativity. But from our point of view, it was, you know, it was time to get moving, guys. And if, if you weren't going to sort of tell us what to do, then we're going to go ahead and figure it out for ourselves. I think that's always like when you're talking about research and, and in general, when you're trying to come up with a solution to a problem in that way, um, it's not, it's exactly what you say. Like, it's not that there's not progress, but you kind of think of something new and say, oh, this would actually be a better solution to this piece, or this would be better here. And then you kind of, I mean, this uh, tired old uh, quote of like, uh, perfect is the enemy of good, mm -hmm. where you kind of just keep chasing the perfect solution mm -hmm. and you kind of never actually do anything. One of my old bosses, uh, I, I once went to him and said, like, I, I am implementing this thing or I'm trying to implement this thing. And I can't like figure out what the perfect solution here is. Like before, like on paper, before I start writing code, like, what should I do? What do you think is the best solution? And he was like, why are you even thinking about this? Just start writing code and eventually you get to something that works from the so, head, shoot from the head <laughs> all the way. So. There, there's uh, like these two like extremes, either, you know, don't think about anything, just write code or try to think about everything and never write code. Uh, so obviously you have to put yourself somewhere in between. I mean, do you think also though, like in that, in those, in that scenario, there's so many constraints, right? Like these proposals are made, but you're kind of in this, you're dealing with an existing protocol with something that has its definitions, limitations. I feel like if you're in one of these kind of conversations, it's obviously going to be a lot harder to really implement something into an existing thing than to be able to start from scratch. Okay. And that's basically what you guys did. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely true. I and mean, it, it, you know, I've always been um, fairly clear that, you know, upgrading, um, Upgrading any system in situ is, is really hard. Upgrading yeah. a decentralized system in the situ is like nearly impossible. Um, so, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to dismiss in any, in any way, um, you know, the efforts of, of other people, particularly within Ethereum, but it was simply a reflection of our own, um, sort of, uh, I guess, um, mindset at the time we, we'd, we'd implemented a bunch of stuff. We were ready for the next chapter mm -hmm. and the, you know, the next chapter hadn't been written. So it was up to us to pick up the pen. So to recap, it was actually sort of a solution to the ethereum sharding problem scaling problem whatever whatever you want to call it and you kind of made this protocol this idea but then added the additional abstraction on top that each shard can be different from the other one uh, even today when we're talking about ethereum sharding they're sh talking about all shards being uh, homogenous so they're all the same and they're all running the same vm and the same kind of model was there any complication in adding that abstraction on top? Did you have to like significantly rethink anything in how you'd like thought of this protocol? 
Not at all. In fact, it was a, just a logical um, implication of of the protocol as it was that was meant to be just a sharded um, variant of Ethereum. Basically, we sort of worked out the game theory, worked out the various actors, um, and there was a little bit in it that said, right, um, this is where this actor should um, check that um, this block is actually a valid Ethereum block. And then it was like, right, well, actually, hold on. If all they're doing is checking that this block is a valid Ethereum block, then we can just switch out the is a valid Ethereum block bit for is a valid block of blockchain X. And it was as simple as that. So you have this idea. You're in San Francisco. You're chatting with Merrick. What happens after that? You have this idea for this protocol. Was it like you sat down one day and was like, here it is. And you wrote it out and it was done. Or was it kind of like... You had to go over it a few times. You had to you had to refine it. How did that go? How was that part? So I think the key the key elements of the idea were basically in place in that bar that time in San Francisco. There was really nothing significant that was added to the to the protocol itself. Um, after that, um, a guy called Wendell Davis um, arrived in San Francisco, and we met up with him. We sort of told him. Yeah, we got this kind of cool idea. What do you think? And he was like, yeah, this is a cool idea. You should do it. <laughs> uh, as it turned out, sort of Wendell, um, Wendell ended up, um, ha- helping out the, um, Amise Go guys. And he, you know, his time is relatively limited, but otherwise I think he would have been, um, uh, you know, we were, there was, there were sort of vague ideas that he was going to help out with the project. Beyond that, really, it was a case of flying back to Berlin, setting aside a week or two, um, and, and just, bashing out this paper that, that basically said, um, you know, had all of the bits in it. Um, but I think, I think it's worth pointing that, yeah, when I was, when I was sort of typing out the paper, there was, there were refinements that, that got in there. Part of the, uh, part of the refinements were certainly in the, um, direction of governance, perhaps not sort of what we think of governance, but the technical foundations of the governance, specifically this idea that the parachains, um, would be, um, defined in terms of WebAssembly, which, you know, is now fairly central to, um, to Polkadot, to the project. Um, and also in some sense that the, the main, the relay chain itself would also be, um, would also be defined in terms of WebAssembly. And of course the name at the time it was called something else. Uh, it went through three or four. Can names. you can you tell us what some of the previous oh, names they, are? Will you will you admit awful. it on air? Uh, uh, actually, so okay. One of the the first name was called Disparity, which I quite liked because <laughs> it was like disparate chains, right? Yeah, like many disparate Parity. chains, and it was obviously tied into the branding. But yeah, after consulting a few people on that, there was uh, it was considered a little too negative. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think a later one was Interplex. Uh, I went as far as to buy the domain for that, but uh, yeah, that's a little uh, blends into the background of the Aeons, Cosmos, Eternity, Definity um, sort mm. of math fi. Sounds um, a little 90s to me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. Polkadot actually arose through the paper. So I wrote the paper and I, I, I've written the yellow paper before. And uh, there was already like a beige paper and a red paper and an orange paper and whatnot. So the colours had been done as far as I was concerned. Uh, so I wondered what was next. Of course, patterns are next. Once you've had colours, you move on to patterns. And it's like, so I could have like, I don't know. Stripes. Stripe, the stripe paper. But stripes already associated yeah. with the finance uh, world, right? So it was uh, the obvious. Well, polka dots fun, right? So. And it fits. And it fits. You have pair chains. Yeah. You have dots. these little... Yeah. You can make it fit in a <laughs> retrospective <laughs> <the>, construction. <laughs> <laughs> so you touched a little bit on governance there. I was curious if that like was always part of the, the construction. And I like that you separated it a little bit as well. I've heard the term technical governance used before. I quite like that term to like, there's human governance and like organizing people around a cause and there's technical governance. How do you actually implement a change on a chain? For instance, was that always like part of the idea or like, was that something that came out of frustration with being unable to like change Ethereum or where did that come from? Two main directions, possibly three. So first uh, was the DAO. So the DAO, bit of a disaster there. I'm a little impressed that the, that we actually managed to make a rescue attempt. I mean, we did end up with Ethereum Classic. 
Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm fairly impressed that 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 it it worked out the way it did. But any way to ensure that if ninety percent or even seventy um, percent of, of a community sort of feels some particular way about something, um, that uh, you know, um, that that should be able to be um, expressed and enacted um, in a in a automated but decentralized fashion. Um, I think is good. Then there was the uh, the Ethereum hard forks. So um, rolling out a hard fork is a pain in the ass. Um, we're seeing that even more so these days with um, sharding and Casper and uh, a few other sort of technical improvements to Ethereum. And to be clear, like this is just what most people or like Zcash people or whatever would call network upgrades. They're not like contentious hard forks or like trying to split the chain or anything, just upgrades. Yeah, that's right. So basically non-controversial um, technical alterations to make it better. And these are um, often kind of risky um, operationally heavy communications, heavy operations that are, um, very difficult to organize and, um, people's, um, general aversion to such things. Because of course, most of the people behind this are developers who are not generally the best people in the world at communications or organization or operations. And so the, 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 the reluctance to actually do anything about hard forks is, is resulting in a lack of innovation. And we see it, you know, sort of maxed out, uh, with Bitcoin, but that, that sort of inertia, um, is, is also feeding its way into Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And I wanted this chain to be able to avoid that. So that was, that was the second thing. The third one, I guess, something that's always been in the back of my mind. This, um, this little, let me cast my mind back. So it's March 2014, um, and Vitalik and and, uh, and me are doing a um, an Ethereum meetup in Silicon Valley, and uh, there's I don't know maybe forty people there, um, hmm. and we're basically just sort of describing what it is that we're planning on doing, and look, we've got like a vague proof of concept, and isn't it cool? And we get to the end of the talk, and some guy with a Stanford t-shirt you know very it, it reminded me a bit there's a film uh, that george clooney was in called something and um <laughs> he uh there was the, there was a girl and he was after the girl and the girl had a father who was in the fbi and the girl brought, uh, brought home a boyfriend that was sort of george george clooney's love competitor um and the, the boyfriend was obviously a bit stupid and he had a t-shirt on with massive letters fbi and, <laughs> and the, the dad was like you know is that why you wear on your undercover um and uh you know this is this kind of reminded me a little bit of that anyway this yeah. is the stanford version <laughs> right. he just really wanted you to know exactly um it, it was an older guy and uh, you know so he, he stood up and um this is like basically the first time and, you know, I've done a few public talks and this was the first time uh, and only time that, you know, someone from the audience has given me such a hard time on a question. And his question was, how, how do you upgrade it? You know, this isn't going to, this idea is great, but how, you know, it's not going to last forever. And when you want to upgrade it, how do you upgrade it? And the answer was, well, you know, people upgrade, <laughs> you know, you download the new version and there's a block number and then you upgrade. And he was like, yeah, well, that's not going to work, is it? <laughs> and at the time I was like, ah, of course it'll work. It'll be fine. Um, and, you know. In some sense, it was fine. It happened a couple of times now. We've done like what three, four hard forks. Um, but he was, he absolutely had a point, which was that it's not easy. Um, and it could definitely be improved. Um, and at the time we didn't have an answer for him because there was no really, there was, I mean, WebAssembly wasn't, wasn't around. There was mm -hmm. a few sort of the couple of precursors to WebAssembly, but they weren't really at, you know, the, the capacity that we could do what we wanted to do with them. There was LLVM, but again, it wasn't an, an acceptable um, um, solution for this. It, it, it had numerous drawbacks. So really there wasn't a technical solution. And, um, and whereas I should have said, yes, that's a good point. Um, I actually tried to sort of make him understand that an upgrade path, an upgrade mechanism wasn't necessary. And of course um, it fell on deaf ears, but also, mm. um, uh, it, you know, it, it, I was, uh, yeah, I was definitely downplaying it. Too you didn't much. realize at the time that Stanford dude 
Yeah. was actually predicting some of the future. Indeed. Now, he was, uh, as it turned out, he wasn't actually a Stanford dude. He was just a dude who quite liked the idea of going to Stanford <laughs> and, or having gone to Stanford. And I think, uh, you know, he, he just got the T-shirt from a friend. But uh, nonetheless, um, he had a good point. And that's, that, that has sort of been in the back of my mind for some time. Because as I said, it was the only time I've, I've you know, we were, we were like arguing back and forth for what must have been five or six minutes, which in a meetup is a fairly sizable chunk of time um, to be, you know, focused on a single point that you don't really agree on. And it did stick in my mind. And I think uh, this is almost my way of saying, yeah, you know, fair cop. <laughs> uh, we're, we're getting to it now. <laughs> nice. So this is funny because... I actually have a question sort of related to this. I was wondering what the best question you've been asked about Polkadot is. Well, I don't answer meta questions on principle. Um, so I'm just going to throw it back at you. And that was the very best question <laughs> I've been asked about Polkadot. Damn it. <laughs> also, maybe you don't know right now what the best question was on Polkadot and you'll find out two years later. Yeah, maybe. So digging in a little bit more on the technical side of like w what the protocol actually is, can you give a high level view of just like what the players are in this in this network and what their roles are? Sure. Well, the Polkadot paper mentioned four distinct roles um, uh, for the people that maintain Polkadot. So there was the um, the validators, the nominators, uh, the collators, and the fishermen. Um. In the, let's say, revised model, um, in some sense, it's still correct. And you can, if you want, split things into these four groups. Uh, but I actually prefer to, um, uh, to meld together the, uh, the validators and the nominators because they basically fulfill more or less the same role and meld together the collators and the fishermen because basically being a collator implies you're a fisherman. Um, and, uh, and it seems unlikely that someone would would choose explicitly to be one and not the other. It's a relatively minor configuration point. So um, in in the sort of new model, there's really just validators and collators. And validators, the main difference between them is that validators sit on the relay chain. So they, they, they maintain a single chain. They keep synced to that chain, uh, looking at the blocks and they're helping create new blocks. Um, and the collators are sitting on a parachain. So they don't sit on the relay chain, um, at least not in, as a full node, perhaps as a, as a light client. And they, uh, they look out for new chain, new blocks on the, on the parachain and they, they basically help putting together. Just to clarify, like the, in Ethereum sharding terms, a parachain would be a shard and the relay chain would be like what they call the, the beacon chain or whatever. So it's like one central chain and then a parachain is like a shard but mm. it doesn't have to look like the other sharks. That's actually, I was curious about that. Like in the pro polka dot protocol, is there a center? Is there a, there's a central blockchain with pair chains coming off of it? Yeah. So the relay chain is, is, is what you might call that center. Okay. So it's, um, it, it sits and it, it has, um, it validates a bunch of other chains, parachains that are, uh, that control their own state, but they do so, um, under the rules that they set themselves, um, to the, uh, to the, to the relay chain. So the re relay chain is like this neutral third party that basically keeps the parachain, um, uh, at its word. Mm. So if the parachain wants to do something that is not really allowed, that's against the rules that it set up for itself, it's the relay chain that says, no, um, that's not, that's against your rules. Is the relay chain where the security lies too? That's right. I have a question now about the individual roles. So you mentioned, so now there's more like two. Mm -hmm. So if you look in the context of like nodes, would that be individual nodes making a decision about what, which role they take or would a single node take on many roles? I'm just curious where those roles really live. A single, well, it's, it's really about actors rather than nodes. Um, for example, a, um, an actor who wanted to be a parachain collator. So maybe let's imagine there's a parachain called um, web chain, just to pick a name out of the air. Um, so there's a parachain called web chain and I want to be a web chain collator because I'm going to get paid in web chain tokens. Then I will run a full client, a full node on 
web chain, the parachain. Okay. And running that, I will probably also, because I want to be a collator, I will also have to run a light node like client on the relay chain. Because hmm. I have to I have to know what's going on on the relay chain to know whether when it's my um, well, I have to know what's going on, just a part of the, the, the sort of technicals. So you know, I'm I'm actually running two sort of nodes. I'm running a light node and a full node. If I'm just a validator on the on the relay chain, then I just run a full node of the relay chain. So it doesn't make sense really to talk in, in terms of nodes, but it does make sense to talk, to talk in terms of actors. It's quite reasonable that you will get a large actor who who runs multiple um, nodes. Um, so maybe runs a single, uh, well, maybe runs a full node on the relay chain because they want to be a validator, but they've got so many tokens and so much power and they've, they've got so many Amazon instances. They also run um, full nodes for... 50 parachains mm-hmm. and they uh, they're, they're producing all of this uh, all these blocks and, and it's all good would they have to also run you sort of mentioned the light clients would they have mm-hmm. to have a light client for each one of those parachains um i mean implementation detail but <laughs> i i would uh, I, I would hope not at okay. least in you know possibly in version 1.0 i would hope not by the time we get to version 1. gotcha We touched a little bit on the sort of governance aspect of this already, saying that, you know, uh, they run WebAssembly. But how do they actually run WebAssembly? Where does this... I I know the nomenclature, so it's sort of like (laughs) obvious to me, but we're talking about runtimes for a blockchain. I don't know if that makes sense uh, to everyone, though. So you would essentially have... You define your blockchain in some code and then that compiles to WebAssembly. this is your runtime but what are these runtimes actually doing like how does this WebAssembly piece work um so you can split a blockchain um up into um two components if you like um two sets of logic one of the components looks after things like Ensuring that the blockchain has peers, that the node has peers, I should say. Ensuring that uh, there's a database so it can store stuff from block to block or from instance to instance. Ensuring that there's um, the logic to be able to synchronize that database um, when it connects to other peers. And ensuring um, that there's appropriate logic to author new blocks and critically to be able to recognize um, correctly authored other people's blocks. So if your synchronization code says, yeah, we've got all these blocks coming in, it looks great, then you need a bit of logic that says, it might look great, but these are not the blocks of our chain, or they are they are the blocks of our chain, but they're not the blocks of our specific bit of the chain that we're interested in. Um, they might be um, badly finalized blocks, so they might be like malicious validators, they might be double signed or they might just be a um, a, a, a part of the the, the sort of um, a chain that has that has fallen by the wayside a stale a stale fork as they say um, so that's one part one part is looking after the construction and maintenance of the chain so it's um, you know either you're making your own blocks or you're looking for blocks from other people and you're creating this sort of chain the other part is looking after what it means for those blocks to have happened. So in Bitcoin, to take a simple example, um, what it means for you know some transaction outputs to be spent is that um, some balance has moved from um, being able to be accessed by one key or set of keys to being able to be accessed by some other conditions, which is probably keys or set of keys. That's what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin and not Ethereum. With Ethereum, most of it remains the same. All of the stuff that I just described, synchronization uh, strategies, working out whether it's the canonical chain, the right chain, or whether it's something that just fell by the wayside. It's all the same, pretty much. Um, There are one or two minor details that have changed, but it's very much um, the same thing. But the bit that works out how the transactions, what they mean, right, how they change things, that's different. That's very, very different. And that's why Ethereum is a smart contract platform and Bitcoin is a currency. Well, the runtime is that bit that is different. The bit that is makes Ethereum a smart contract platform and Bitcoin a currency. That, that, that second bit that I described, that's the runtime. 
We could also call it, if we're being very technical and, and, and strict and academic, we also call it the state transition function, mm -hmm. right? Um, because it's the function, the, the bit of logic, the definition that, that defines, um, how the state transitions from one block or one transaction to a new block. This, we're talking about the state database. Uh, well, the state database is part of that database layer on like how you actually store this. But um, basically, how you update that state database it's, is defined by the state transition function. Yeah. Okay. That's right. So your blockchains pretty much are um, the model, if you like, the computation model. So if you're describing this to someone from the 60s and um, you know, they just mm. wanted, you know, tell me what a blockchain is. And you wanted to describe them at a relatively high level. Well, the model is there's some storage, which is a database, key value mm -hmm. database, pretty much. Ethereum's a little bit more complicated because the keys are actually account IDs and the values are actually um, um, balances, non, um, like transaction counts and other trees of key value pairs. Um, but um, by and large, there is some structured state database or storage that, that sticks around between blocks and there is some code that takes your block which is basically just a bunch of transactions and your previous storage and just tells you what the new storage is or whether it or it's invalid so either says no it's invalid no good or it says yep it's valid and here is the new the new storage and that's what you put in your database and it's as simple as that so yeah so how does governance fit into the state transition function well governance is is a bit of a it's a bit of an umbrella term so there are two bits um that that are, that are useful to talk about with governance so the one is the sort of underlying fundamental reason why governance particularly binding governance is even possible and the other one is the specific mechanisms under which um people or actors in the in the system can govern like how how do they actually have their decisions be be made so one of them is about enacting decisions. The other one is about making decisions. So I'll do the enacting decisions first because it's easier and it's closer to what we've been talking about. So enacting decisions is about the web assembly. So basically it's saying, right, well, the key thing about governance is um, firstly, it should be possible to alter the database in some way that we cannot foresee because it might get into a, into some uh, state that we don't mean it to go into. For example, there might be a DAO and it turns out that the DAO has like completely locked up a bunch of money and it's going to be stolen if we don't do anything for 30 days. And we really want to alter the database. So the DAO has no money. <laughs> and in fact, the DAO doesn't exist. And everyone that put money in the DAO has Gets got their, their money, money back. back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that was, so it's a completely, um, a completely arbitrary alteration. There's no real way of encoding this alteration up front. We just have to be able to say, well, under certain circumstances, we need to be able to alter it in some um, arbitrary way. The other thing that we want to do is we want to say, well, ah, look, um, we've got this cool technical improvement and we need to deploy it, which basically means changing this function, this runtime, this state transition function. Um, and we need, and we don't know what we're going to do up front, inevitably. And there's no real way of ever being able to say, well, this is a, a non-controversial agreement and this is a controversial, you know, it's like, no, there is either you're, uh, you're going to upgrade your state transition function or your runtime or you're not. And so it's useful to be able to do that. And, uh, that's the other thing that, that, that WebAssembly makes possible. So by having this general, um, format for expressing the runtime logic, we can, um, allow for um, that to be um, altered arbitrarily down the line. So it's Turing complete, you know, the lovely Turing complete phrase. It basically means we can, anything that we can think of down the line, we can replace it with that. In current Ethereum setup, it's not like that. No. So in the current Ethereum setup, it is what programmers would call hard coded. So, you, it, to... it, it, you know, there is the Ethereum specification, the protocol, and they implement that. And that protocol doesn't involve, there's no way of that protocol changing itself. Whereas with Polkadot, the protocol is self-describing. So the Genesis block, the, the, this is like very cool and beautiful sort of, um, sort of thing for, for the mathematician inside of you. With Ethereum, the Genesis block included the balances of various people that had taken part in the crowd cell. So the Genesis block is this kind of initialization um, uh, data that goes into the, the storage or the database of the blockchain, the state of the blockchain, if you like. The Genesis block of Polkadot includes Polkadot, right? So the Genesis block of Polkadot includes an entry in there that goes under the label code 
and that is the code of Polkadot, of the Polkadot runtime. So that describes Polkadot's state transition function. And that's the code that gets queried every time a new block comes in to say, hey, is this block actually a valid Polkadot block? And if so, could you tell me how it changes the state? And then it's the Polkadot client that looks at the result of that and decides, hey, okay, that was a good Polkadot block. I'm putting it in the database. I'm going to change the state in this way, or that was invalid. And the person that gave it to me, I'm going to punish them. Now, at the moment, there aren't really any other blockchains that do it. So Tezos sort of wants to do it. And they've, they've got something that's sort of similar in their, um, in their roadmap. But in, in principle, at least, this idea of um, abstracting um, the state transition function and encoding it in some Turing-complete general fashion and sticking it on the chain itself, um, that's, that's a new thing. And that's what enables, basically, having that code on the chain itself is what en- enables upgrading it because you can just issue a transaction that basically says, okay, replace the code with this version of the code, which is an, a complete representation of the runtime. And then after that block, you are now running on the new runtime. Would the fear then though be what happens if you do one of these upgrades and it's like kind of taking you in the wrong direction? Does this open up like the door to more, to a malicious actor doing something or... Yeah, what's the problem with it? Inevitably, it is a powerful mechanism and must be tempered with an appropriate means of governing when these upgrades should happen. So that leads to the second part that you were talking about before. (laughs) That's right. So aside from potential bugs, now, if there are potential bugs, you can't really prevent bugs. You can do your best to, to, to make sure they don't get in. One way of doing that is by formally specifying you know, the specific mechanism by which upgrades should be able to be allowed and then making sure that um, multiple people, when they implement that mechanism, they end up with roughly the same one. They end up with something that um, uh, results in the same thing. So you can have multiple implementations. That's what we did with Ethereum. It's likely what we'll do with Polkadot. So leaving potential bugs aside for the moment, then we need to be very careful with the mechanism in general. So one one very simple governance mechanism is give Gav the key, right? And Gav will decide when Polkadot should be upgraded. That's basically, <laughs> if we're honest, the Ethereum mechanism, right? Vitalik has the, the general key to Ethereum. If Vitalik says, we'll upgrade Ethereum in this way, then aside from your Ethereum classic 10%ers, Ethereum will pretty much be upgraded. We're not going to do that for Polkadot because it's, it, it's not decentralized and it's not really, um, you know. Don't you want the key? No, I don't want the key. <laughs> Like there's, there's far too much. With great power comes great responsibility. I don't want that responsibility. So, uh, no. Rather, this is something that should be left in the hands of the people who are most exposed to Polkadot becoming good or bad, right? Polkadot succeeding or failing. And as such, as the paper sort of pointed out in the first place, we quantify um, how much exposure you have to the Polkadot network success by the number of DOT tokens that you own or that you at least have control over. And so the underlying uh, means of making decisions within Polkadot of, of, you know, potentially upgrading or or doing some out of bands, uh, arbitrary alteration to the storage, to the database is, um, is through a vote, um, um, that is weighted by the number of tokens that you control. Now, this is again tempered with a few other, um, mechanisms and will likely in the future be tempered with a few more in order to uh, try to ensure that um, that malicious actors have a hard time pushing through something that is bad for the network. But it is also worth remembering that bad for the network is an extremely subjective mm. term and there's no way of, of ever having a single network that makes progress in a good direction uh, while keeping everybody under the same roof doesn't just doesn't exist people some people will never agree and when it comes to a crunch point one either you don't make progress or one half forks off um, and you know they can fork off as for all I can you know. is there um like in some of those mechanisms like are you touching on quadratic voting is that not a thing is that too basic what's where are you at on that topic um quadratic voting has some interesting um potential it's the really cool thing about it doesn't work unless you're Sybil resistant and Polkadot has no intrinsic Sybil resistance mechanism because, hey, it's basically impossible. <laughs> like, there are potential ways you can do it at a higher level, uh, but when you're talking about the level that Polkadot's at, um, it, it's really not 
And uh, either you closed it off to a known set of participants or it's not civil resistant, kind of. Like, if it has, mm. if it's completely anonymous participation, then how would you ever have identity? <laughs> but, uh, so one thing that I like about this system and this design is that whatever structure we come up with today and make into, like, this is version one of Polkadot. There's no reason to believe that we will never come up with a better thing. And because we actually have this upgrade mechanism, Mm. we can upgrade to the better thing in the future. Including the way voting happens. Including the way governance happens. I mean, the governance system can be used to remove the governance system. But if so, going back to that, like having no one hold the key. Mm -hmm. So you're like, how would a community ever vote for its own voting rights? Or how would it, like, how would that happen? I guess based on percentages or the number of people who weigh in favor versus. So the, um, okay. So the system that we have at the moment is, um, not necessarily that which will be in the Genesis block. Um, You know, there's probably some iterations to come yet, perhaps fairly substantial ones. But at the moment, the system that we have is based around the idea of a referendum. So if you want to get something through, if you want to change, make a change using the governance system, um, and this can be a change, just a one-off change to the storage, or it could be a, an upgrade um, to, the, to Polkadot itself, then it, goes, it must go to referendum. With a referendum, assuming everyone comes out and votes, you expect there to be a, more than 50% that vote um, in favor of the change for it to work. Turnout being what it is, it's actually quite unlikely that the whole of the stakeholder community will come out and vote. So in the case, if you get 50% plus one votes in favor of a change, the change goes through. Nothing will stop that, right? Majority carries always. If, if there's like full turnout, even if there's like less of a full turnout, but you still get 50% plus one of the votes of the total stake in the system, it will go through. If you get less, than 50% plus one of the total of the um, total stake in the system voting for it, then, but still a majority, or indeed maybe not even a majority, then it goes, the decision is made dependent upon the council's approval of it. So the council is a, is a body that is elected through approval voting. So again, this comes back to hmm. stakeholder um, weighted voting. But the, the council is a body that basically either makes it more likely that a um, referendum that does not have full turnout will go through or at least elevates it to the level of a simple majority um, making it go through. If the council doesn't like a referendum, then it must go through the hard way, if it's to go through at all, which is um, that either you get everyone to come out and that's a 50% plus one, so basically the whole of the stake of the system votes and at least 50% or slightly more than 50% votes in favor. Or you have substantially more yes votes than no votes. So you can basically overturn the council's um, what disapproval by um, having a substantially greater uh, number of yes votes than no votes. As you get closer to that magic 50% plus one yes votes, you need fewer and fewer, a less, less and less of a, an advantage over the no votes. Once you hit that 50% plus one, you need no advantage over the no votes. You, you've now got it because you've got 50% plus one. So it's a, there's a nice little curve that you can mm. draw. But at the relatively low turnout, you need an awful lot more votes than the no votes. So basically, a small number of no votes can prevent um, a change that the council doesn't think is a good idea from happening. And mm. that's a a means of avoiding, um, you know, someone strong arming the network into uh, a change that not everyone thinks is a great idea. I think as a bit of context, maybe not everyone is sort of involved in, in the blockchain space as deeply and like touching on these governance things. But I think any, any voting or like any governance protocol that depends on having high turnout is doomed to fail. Like if you're saying that if we get 100% participation, this protocol is perfect. It's sort of okay, but that doesn't matter because in reality, what we see with a lot of these like token curated registries and with a lot of attempts at governance right now, 
the average turnout is more like 2%, 5%. Most people just buy tokens and hold them and don't give a shit about what the project is because they're investors, they're speculators. So depending on high, having high turnout is, is obviously not super great. <laughs> I kind of want to ask some questions about you and your background. I had this question today. So I was wondering, how many blockchains have you built? I've, uh, I built the vast majority of the, at least the earlier versions of the C++ Ethereum, uh, chain. Um, and I was fairly heavily involved in the parity Ethereum chain. And I also, um, am fairly heavily involved in the, uh, polka dot chain and the substrate, um, code base. And uh, if not directly programming on it, very close to the parity Bitcoin implementation. Yeah. I think I'm just, I'm very curious about what that process is like building a blockchain. I know it's got a little bit of a vague question, mm -hmm. but. Uh, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's much the same as, um, at least initially, it's much the same as many other projects. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, hacking around. There's a lot of, um, bashing out code um but i guess one of the things that where it differs a little is when you can finally um kick off a test net and this usually happens in um maybe two months six weeks to to, to ten weeks after you've after you've started your development and it's pretty cool like you can open it up to the public you can um start to get users um and by very virtue of it being a network where, you know, people are sort of peer to peer, they're connecting with each other. They're asking, you know, download, uh, whether some particular version works or how they managed to get so many peers or configuration, all the rest of it. Um, it's a little more community oriented than some of the projects that you mm. might do where you release and you get some users. The question here is, is it designed like in the design process? Do you have to design more? Do you have to figure out more before you start releasing it? Or can you actually iterate like you do with normal software? When I was building the very early, the sort of first version of Ethereum in you know early 2014, there was definitely iteration there, but it was iteration done in tandem with Vitalik and Jeff. So for sure, we were designing to a large degree as we went along. Um, we had um, ether pads, and no relation, um, that... Uh, allowed us to sort of, you know, collaborate in real time on specifications. And it was in fact the large etherpad that that sort of held all of the latest specifications as to what it was that Vitalik and I had chatted about that eventually turned into the yellow paper. Oh, cool. Right. So um there were various there was one particular etherpad was the EVM specification. And there were a few of the things like I think call or whatever that were a bit fiddly, a bit hard to get right. And, um, they weren't well defined in the, in the white paper. So, you know, after me and Vitalik had sort of figured it out between us, Jeff needed to know as well. Um, and there were one or two other people who were sort of interested. So went underneath the pad, I typed it all out. I maintained it. And that was, that was pretty much necessary for writing a blockchain where there are multiple implementations. And this is before testnet even. Yeah, this was around the POC2, POC3. So there, was oh, okay, a, there okay. were early test nets, but they weren't, I think POC5 maybe was our really big test net that, 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 that sort of kept going for several months. So it was before then. It was in relatively early stages, maybe around February, March. And yeah, it was, uh, it's notable that eventually more and more sort of, um, disambiguations got lumped in with the EVM spec. And at one day it was like, I think it was, Early April 2014, it was like, right, I'm going to just put this into a paper because there's enough content now. It won't take that much, um, which I did. Who are the early people on those test nets? Like, did you know everyone who was participating? No, there were there were some sort of uh, uh, usual suspects um, that sort of got in early and, and stuck around. Uh, I remember the, the the prog guys, the People's Republic of Doug, were uh, were pretty um, were pretty early uh, at developing smart contracts, and I heard you know, from people around that they, uh, one of them, at least the guy who wrote some of those smart contracts still codes in LLL, which was basically the first functional smart contract language. Um, and I mean, functional as in you could use it rather than functional as in it was good. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, there were a few for sure. There were, there were, there were some, um, some cool people that, that stuck around in the ecosystem. So then 
on testnet you were iterating you were adding what did you learn from like going through it that time to now like are you do you feel like that creation part is different it's much the same sort of you know fun of of having people that you know sort of using very sort of um, excited about what you're coding and you're sort of putting new stuff in for them there's not that much that's that's different i mean definitely there's more that's similar than than what than what's different it's a little different i guess in 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 terms of with ethereum it was a smart contract platform so you had you had more actual legit users rather than people who are sort of interested from a sort of uh, early adopter devops point of view to try and understand what's uh, what it takes to run a node um with ethereum it, you had those guys as well but you had also um the people that were like actually really interested in deploying smart contracts and i hope that we'll get back as we start doing our first smart contract parachain I'm, i hope that we'll we'll sort of be able to start kicking around with those users as well so having built all these different implementations of different blockchains like you mentioned earlier there are some commonalities obviously what are the lessons like broadly the lessons learned from having built these things so probably the biggest lesson um was what happened with the c++ ethereum and what happened with parity ethereum um which is that you you code it and you know if you're a decent coder you write things in modules and you try and be generic as much as possible you try and be abstract um which allows you to iterate and fast and sort of experiment and um, um and refactor relatively easily. And with CPB Ethereum, time came, I think it was probably early 2015 where um it was clear proof of authority there were people who wanted a proof of authority style network so they weren't keen on mining. They had trusted or semi-trusted people and they wanted them to be able to uh, run a blockchain. Um and so I, you know, there was already appropriate abstractions pretty much um so it didn't take too much refactoring in order to basically make it configurable so the same code base could be used for both the ethereum mainnet and also proof of authority network and then fast forward uh, we're doing parity ethereum and one of the first things that i did was i made sure that there was a um, generic way of configuring a network that allowed us to have um, multiple different consensus mechanisms be sort of pluggable and it wasn't um, uh, so surprising when later there was, you know, lots of um, lots of talk of pluggable consensus. No, oh, we need pluggable consensus, says whoever it was, uh, EA, I think. Um, and it's like, yeah, we we know we did that. You know, I was coding that up like you know one or two years ago, and it was uh, it's been in parity Ethereum from the beginning. With Substrate, we go one further, and so this is the real lesson learned. Um, with substrate, it's like, it's not enough to have pluggable consensus. We want pluggable runtime. We want pluggable everything. We want to be able to make something that is 100% generic, but also really easy to develop on. And so, yeah, I mean, it, lesson learned from a life of coding is, you know, be as flexible as you can. Don't be floppy. Don't try and like literally, uh, as you say, you know, sort of work out the very best possible solution before you actually code anything. You know, you've got the, there is definitely a balance. Um, so, uh, you know, um, it's important that you don't try to be over flexible, but you definitely need to, um, to push it towards the, the degree of, of abstraction, genericism and, and, and flexibility. And, uh, that's, that's definitely true for blockchain as well. We haven't really described, uh, substrate in any detail. What's, what's the difference between substrate and Polkadot and how, how are they related? This, in much the same way that, you know, what I learned from CPP Ethereum and when I started doing parity Ethereum, it's like, right, we're going to do it in this way because we want to be able to sure we've got pluggable consensus. In much the same way that I approached those, I approached that, I came from with that approach to Polkadot earlier still, and that's where Substrate came from. So Substrate is basically um, a necessary artifact, a necessary consequence of wanting to make things as generic as I could. So Substrate is in some sense parity's, just parity's version of Polkadot. It's certainly, it's Parity's version of what we call the Polkadot runtime environment, which is um, the bit of Polkadot that isn't the runtime, right? So earlier I was talking about the runtime, which is the bit that's sort of the nature of the blockchain, the thing that makes Ethereum a smart contract platform, the thing that makes Bitcoin a currency. Um, well, the thing that makes Polkadot a parachain platform is the runtime. But if you get, if you ignore that and you just say, right, well, this is a platform that uses um, libp2p, and WebAssembly in order to make a, um, a governable, upgradable blockchain, right? That's basically, other than that, just generic. 
um, that substrate. And it's also the, 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 the basic idea, the specification of it, if you like, is also uh, known as the Polkadot runtime environment. So it's like a generalized framework for building blockchains. Do you have to use it with Polkadot? Can you only build parachains with it or can you use it to like build your own thing completely separately? No, it's wholly generic. So it's, although if you use it, um, it will probably be fairly easy for you to um, turn your substrate chain into a parachain. Um, and that's the idea. That's the roadmap. Um, but at the moment, it's it's really just a a framework for building blockchains and getting them out and working really quickly. And it comes with a bunch of cool things, like you know, you get automatic upgradability, which is not something that's generally available in blockchains at all. Uh, you get to use libp2p, which is relatively cutting edge. Um, you get to use um, um, WebAssembly with the the optimization that we have that basically makes it all run at native speed as long as you're running an up to date node. So there's uh, you know there's a lot that's that's going for it. You basically get most of the technology behind Polkadot for free. Would you call Substrate a toolkit? What is it? Well, there's, you know, if we go back to the, uh, to, to, to the late nineties, early noughties, there was, there were two main, um, things on Linux, um, that let you build GUIs. There was, uh, Qt or Qt as, you know, the, uh, the guys in Norway call it, but I think everyone else just calls it Qt. Um, and, uh, there was, um, uh, there was, there was GTK. Now these were considered toolkits. The T in GTK even stood for a toolkit, but, Qt was positioned as a framework because you could use it as a toolkit. It had a toolkit sort of inside it, um, that, and, you know, but, but the whole thing sort of taken together was a framework. I think it basically, the difference between the two is that a toolkit is like, it doesn't impose anything on you. There are just things in it that you can use and you just pick a few of them and use them and it's all good. A framework sort of says, right, well, you can't have it your own way from the top level. Um, we tell you how, how it's, everything's going to be sort of structured. And then within that structure, you work within it and you can add your own bits mm. to it. So, uh, whereas one is like, um, you add on, the other is like, you take away. One is additive, the other is subtractive. And I think, um, uh, substrate is definitely more the, um, the subtractive thing. So it's definitely more of a framework. So it's basically says, right, this is how the blockchain is going to be. And you can add your own components to it. You can remove some of the components. You can make it, you can sort of turn it from the inside into what you want, but <clears throat> from the outside, it's more or less going to look like substrate. Did substrate come from, like, I think you sort of mentioned this, but was it like the fact that you wanted to create these like proof of authority blockchains? It was like from there that you got this idea of like being able to quickly spin up things. Was it from there? Is there a line from sort of the POA idea to this or is it? Um, there is a line, but it's indirect. So okay. the um, CPP Ethereum, one of the reasons that I made it more generic than it would otherwise have been was in order to support POA blockchains. And certainly one of the, one of the key design decisions that went in early on, like from day one of parity Ethereum was to be able to support POA and eventually POS blockchains. Um, so parity, you know, one of the things it's working on at the moment, um, and I, I, Fred probably knows better than I do, but is, is, is a POS version of Ethereum, um, with POS obviously standing for proof of stake. And, uh, that's, um, that uses the same basic, um, uh, abstraction mechanism that was put in on day one of parity Ethereum. And now, of course, it's not just, um, POA, POS, or, or changing all that. We actually want to change the entire runtime. So we're not, we're not just concerned with how new blocks are made or what finalization mechanism we're talking about, uh, but rather the nature of the blockchain itself. Is mm. this a, is this a currency blockchain? Is this a smart contract blockchain? Is this a name registration blockchain? Is this a, uh, a parachain, an intercommunication blockchain? Or is it just some new blockchain that we haven't thought of yet that, that, you know, is uh, yet to be invented? Are most of the substrate, the resulting blockchains from substrate are they usually proof of stake is there any or is it really open you can be anything or is it really in a pos space it really is very open oh wow okay um it it does have at the moment at least it does have a fixed consensus mechanism but that is a next generation consensus mechanism that works very nicely that said we do eventually hope for even the consensus mechanism to become modular and potentially pluggable. Um, the reason that that's not our priority right now is because a, we're really happy with our current consensus mechanism and 
Uh, B, there are subtleties to modularizing the consensus mechanism, particularly um, making the network, uh, giving the runtime or the the thing that can be switched in and out that currently is the runtime, giving it real-time access to the network. That is a massive potential security issue. And as long as it's running effectively sandboxed, um, at the mo- which is what it does at the moment, because all it's doing is executing um, some um, uh, determining whether some block is valid and telling you what the changes are to the storage. Um, as long as that's all it's doing, there's very limited damage that anyone could ever do to your computer. Mm-hmm. As soon as you say, oh, okay, well, it's also going to define what the consensus mechanism is and therefore which computers it's allowed to connect to and what there are, what it, what it should be saying to them. Um, then you've got like, and potentially also keys and, ugh, you know, the, the whole thing of mass vastly escalates in terms of seriousness. And it's not something we want to deal with. Other projects are attempting it. Tezos being a notable one. Um, and we'll see how they go. That's it. I mean, you could build that on a layer below. So you're saying that, like, if you said that the consensus algorithm is not choosable at runtime, like, sort of you define it in your Genesis block and it's just hard coded into the client and it's, it chooses the one that, it, you know, that is configured that from scratch and you can't change it, then it's obviously a lot easier to build around this, but you're still running into some like considerations depending on how crazy you go with your consensus algorithm. Hmm. So earlier in this episode, we were talking about upgrading Ethereum, the sort of frustration that came when people were talking about sharding, but there was still a lot of kind of debate and work to happen. I think you've sort of answered it, but I, I feel like now that we understand a little bit more about Polkadot, about a lot of the ideas that you have, maybe you can say again, why not just upgrade Ethereum? Why not just build on that? We certainly do plan on um, upgrading Ethereum when the time comes um, and, uh, you know, supporting that as best as we can. Um, but it's a big job. It's a difficult job. And there are many different stakeholders that must all be all be brought into alignment over that upgrade process. And that's not something that we are positioned to be able to do. So in the meantime, and as it turns out, there's quite a lot of meantime, we wanted to to bring that forward. Now, we could have gone one of two ways. We could have gone um, towards um, the keep as much as you can from Ethereum and kind of do do the minimal set of changes um, in order to in order to shard it. So basically, we could have done sharded Ethereum the parity way. If we were doing that, it seems to me that it would be unlikely for us to really put forward anything that would become successful because eventually we knew we would know for sure that there would be a, an alternative incompatible version of the roughly the same thing um, from a bunch of uh, other people that sort of more broadly represented the um, Ethereum community. So the alternative was simply to say, right, well, let's, let's start afresh and let's build something that we think is not just a sharded version of Ethereum. In fact, maybe not in the slightest bit really a sharded version of Ethereum, but something that is perhaps technically similar, but that fulfills an alternative sort of niche or spot in the solution space. And that's that was just by far the obvious correct decision. Do you think, I mean, will these will Polkadot work with Ethereum, with the shards? Is this all going to kind of be used in tandem? Yeah, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's um, it's difficult to tell, of course, until uh, until we have the new Ethereum, which, um, as I say, is is not something that's looking likely for a, uh, a while, at least. But given what what we know of the direction that that's going in, it does seem to me that the two will um, cooperate fairly well, and that the Ethereum bridge, which was always sort of noted to be a part of Polkadot. Um, will be uh, um, will be possible with the the new Ethereum Shasper edition. That's sharded Casper, and not anything else that begins with sh. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that. It's sort of it. It actually sounds like I mean, we you're sort of bringing two projects that you initiated potentially back together somewhere down the line, where they become connected and maybe serve slightly different purposes, but actually can work together. 
Yeah, I, that's right. I don't see them as being in um, a huge amount of competition. I think, uh, I think by and large, they serve different purposes. The Ethereum um, network is really about ensuring um, it's geared towards smart contracts. Its level of abstraction is very much um, uh, at the user sort of uh, level. It's uh, the sorts of programs it handles are sort of small snippets yeah. um, that benefit hugely from being in the same um, environment as other small snippets of code. Polkadot's rather different. It's the abstraction that it works around is, is, is chains. So we're talking about high volume, one or very few levels of fixed functionality, um, where interop- interoperability between these pieces of fixed function, high volume um, pieces of fixed functionality is relatively, um, small. That said, I do think, you know, there will be um, some degree of interoperability that happens within the Ethereum network. And I think there'll be some degree of smart contract provision that happens within Polkadot. But I think nonetheless, by and large, they're, they're going to be pushing in different directions. So I want to say thank you so much for sitting down with us and going through all of this. Not at all. Thanks uh, for having me. We have wanted to have you on before. I'm so glad that we got a chance to do it to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.